Hello, welcome to Antiquitas, Leaders and Legends of the Ancient World, with Cornell University professor Barry Strauss, military historian, expert in the ancient world, and best-selling author. During this podcast, Barry and his guests will share stories about fascinating and controversial people and events in history and myth. And now, Professor Barry Strauss. On a hot, steamy summer day in 48 BC, to the rumble of the commander's horn and the cry of the trumpet, 6,000 cavalrymen advanced across the central Greek plain. Well-armed, well-fed, well-led, they were the sons of aristocrats and kings, making up a mosaic of nationalities from Gaul to Italy to Greece. Wearing chainmail armor or tunics, plumed helmets or felt caps, brandishing javelins and lances, long swords and scimitars, they galloped over the gap, separating them from their enemy. Only a thousand cavalrymen, most of them Gauls and Germans, rode on the other side. The attackers planned to roll those enemy cavalrymen up, charge into the flank of the enemy's infantry, and plunge his army into chaos. In spite of the international cast of cavalrymen, who were allies called into service for their hegemon, this was a Roman conflict. It was the great civil war between Caesar and Pompey, and its bloodiest battle, the Battle of Pharsalus, was underway. Pharsalus took place 154 years after the Battle of Zama. We go from 202 to 48 BC. In the century and a half between the two battles, Rome conquered virtually all of the Mediterranean, including Carthage, which it destroyed. Rome also conquered Gaul, that is, roughly France and Belgium, and invaded Germany and Britain, crossing both the Rhine River and the English Channel. Rome had created the most durable empire of the ancient world outside of China. But the conquest tore Roman society apart. Instead of sharing its wealth with ordinary people and sharing political power with elites outside Rome, the extremely narrow governing oligarchy pulled up the drawbridge. The result was a century of conflict, revolution, and civil war. Rome had suffered several rounds of war already when in 49 BC, a new conflict broke out. On one side stood the Roman Senate, champion of the oligarchy. Its leading commander was Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great. Pompey was not a principled politician, but he felt his interests were best served with the senators. He was one of Rome's military giants, but he was slightly past his prime. On the other side stood one of history's most cunning and resourceful commanders ever, a great conqueror, a commanding politician, and a brilliant propagandist. He was Gaius Julius Caesar. Although no Democrat, Caesar championed the interests of ordinary people. Like Pompey, though, he had a gigantic ego, and he was promoting, above all, himself. The start of the Civil War saw Caesar fresh from the conquest of Gaul. The Senate considered Caesar to be a danger to the Republic, and they stripped him of his military command. Caesar responded by declaring war. Technically, he was a rebel. Practically, it was civil war. Caesar convinced his troops to follow him by saying that he was fighting to protect the rights of the ordinary people of Rome. More important, he said that he championed his status and his soldiers, because without Caesar to protect them, 
they would not receive the land and the bonuses they had been promised. So the war was on. In the first season of fighting, 49 BC, Caesar invaded Italy. Pompey, leading the forces of the Roman state, withdrew from Italy across the Adriatic to Greece in order to gather allies from the eastern Mediterranean. That was an area where he had many chips to call in. Caesar, meanwhile, turned westward, and he conquered Spain in a lightning campaign. In the second year of war, 48 BC, Caesar crossed the Adriatic. Pompey defeated him in a long siege for control of Dyrrhachium, a fortified coastal city in what is now Albania. He let Caesar and his army escape, however. Caesar, sneering, told his men, the enemy would have won if he had had a real general. Caesar and his army regrouped in central Greece. Pompey and his forces allowed them. They met in Thessaly. Historians have several ancient sources for the Battle of Pharsalus that followed, including a most unusual source, an epic poem written a century later by the poet Lucan. The most important source, although certainly not a neutral one, the most important source for the battle was written by Caesar himself. He gives his version of events in the three volumes of his commentaries on the Civil War. The writing is brilliant, pungent, and highly biased. It's also a reminder that Caesar was a genius. Not many generals are also outstanding politicians who write literary classics. Ancient Thessaly was known for witches and war. The witches are supposed to have harnessed the power of the moon. The warriors took advantage of the earth. A region in central Greece, Thessaly, features a plain that was made for the clash of armies, wide and flat, with rivers running through it for anchoring one's flank. A ring of mountains closes the region in, as if to accentuate the drama. It was here that Caesar and Pompey settled their feud. The 30 days from early July to early August 48 BC decided the contest between Pompey and Caesar. That is to say, from early July to early August on the calendar that was then in use. If we were to translate those days to the real calendar, the accurate calendar, the solar calendar, we're talking about the period from early May to early June, always in 48 BC. Pompey counted on hunger and misery to soften up the enemy to the point where his army could deliver the final blow. What he didn't count on was Caesar's ability to do the impossible. Having rallied his beaten troops at Dyrrhachium, Caesar next marched them rapidly over miserable terrain, including 200 miles through the Pindus Mountains and south into Thessaly. He then proceeded to secure food for his hungry men in a rough, brutal, and effective manner. The word had gotten out about Caesar's defeat at Dyrrhachium, and most cities, even those allied to Caesar, now feared Pompey too much to open their gates. So Caesar opened them himself. He chose the small city of Gomphi, strategically located on the main pass into Thessaly. Gomphi was rich and full of supplies. The authorities begged Pompey for help, but he had not reached Thessaly yet, which gave Caesar a free hand. It took only an afternoon for his army to storm the walls. For once, they had their commander's permission to plunder, and they did. The soldiers ate and drank themselves silly and took out their frustrations on the population. Twenty of the town's leading men were found dead in an apothecary shop. They preferred to take poison 
rather than face Caesar and his men. As soon as the news spread, the people of all the cities of Thessaly opened their gates, except for the city of Larissa, which had a substantial Pompeian garrison to protect it. Caesar's drunken and bloated men would have made a prime target for Pompey, but he was about a week behind. Unlike Caesar, who took his men on a forced march through hell, Pompey made a stately progress to Thessaly, moving eastward along the Via Ignatia and then south by a relatively easy route to the city of Larissa. Pompey took his time, but demonstrating self-confidence might have seemed more important to him than rushing to deny a few days of rest to a badly bloodied enemy. We'd like to know what Pompey was thinking during this crucial period, but the general never told his own story. Caesar and his allies dominate the written record. As often in ancient history, we have to read between the lines and apply common sense in order to reach a satisfactory narrative. What I'm offering here is my reconstruction of the battle. As Caesar pulled out of Dyrrhachium, Pompey consulted his colleagues. One general proposed going westward to use their command of the sea to reconquer Italy, to employ that as a base to take Gaul and retake Spain, and then finally to go after Caesar. Pompey turned down this advice. He rightly recognized that his strategic goal was not territory, but Caesar's army. Politically, Pompey's base was in the east, and if he shifted his forces westward, some of his eastern supporters might withdraw their men and cut off their supply of money. Pompey also considered the reinforcements that had arrived in Greece, two veteran legions from Syria. Pompey believed it was possible to defeat Caesar's army. He still hoped to avoid a pitched battle because Caesar's soldiers were, quote, disciplined and desperate men, as one source tells us. So Pompey made, again quoting from a source, the most prudent calculation to protract the war and wear out the enemy by hunger from day to day. But unlike before, he was now willing to think the unthinkable. The sources tend to blame Pompey's advisors and his own weakness for listening to them. Hot-headed and ignorant of war, they thought Caesar was finished if only Pompey would give the final push. Some had lost their fortunes and were eager to get their hands on the property of Caesar's supporters. Many distrusted Pompey and his ego. Caesar's lieutenants fought for Caesar. Pompey's fought for senatorial government. There was talk of getting rid of Pompey once they'd finished off Caesar. Also, they accused Pompey of dragging the war on longer than necessary. For example, one senator, Marcus Favonius, complained that thanks to Pompey's sluggishness, they would never get back to Italy in time for this year's figs. Some of Pompey's eastern allies joined the chorus and demanded a pitch battle. At last, Pompey gave in, like a ship's captain surrendering the rudder in a strong storm. As a Latin poet later put it, Pompey agreed to fight a pitch battle. The question is why? Was it out of weakness or character, or was it a careful and considered decision? If the latter, was his reasoning military or political? The sources offer various motives. One writer says that Pompey saw the danger of battle, but his men forced him into it. A second disagrees. He concludes the problem was Pompey's need to please as well as his thirst for glory. Another author says simply that some god misled Pompey. In fact, it is hard to believe the man who stood up to Caesar at Dyrrhachium caved into Favonius and his figs now that the army was in Thessaly. More likely, Pompey changed his mind. He might have felt that it was now or never. By giving Caesar breathing space, Pompey had made a mistake. Caesar's army was obviously not starving. 
but they had to keep moving to find new supplies. Still, the harvest was about to come in, and soon Caesar's men would be able to feed themselves and to do so for months, and then they could unleash ruin, veteran, tried soldiers as they were. Pompey knew that as long as Caesar was alive, Caesar was dangerous and unpredictable. Meanwhile, Pompey's own army was not likely to improve. It had just gained two veteran legions under Metellus Scipio. That and the wind at its back after Dyrrhachium had made it strong, for now. With the commanders pulling in opposite directions, Pompey probably wondered how long that would last. He could comfort himself with what the defector Titus Labienus, Caesar's former lieutenant, maintained, that Caesar's army was no longer the fierce force that had conquered Gaul. Military and political logic alike now said to Pompey that fighting a pitched battle was the best of several bad alternatives. Pompey's judgment was intelligent, it was reasonable, and it was wrong. Indeed, it's difficult to convince a proud, well-fed, and well-supplied army not to fight. Memnon tried and failed to make the case before the Granicus River. Fabius made the same fate before Cannae. Now it was Pompey's turn. And so in the end, Pompey allowed himself the luxury of hope. It was a dangerous concession. Pharsalus lies in the heart of Thessaly, at the southern edge of the central Thessalian plain, astride both east-west and north-south roads. The mountains sit just south of the town, while the river Enipius flows north of it, and the foothills of other mountains rise north of that. The valley is about five miles wide at Pharsalus, while it narrows to the east and opens up to the west. It was in the vicinity of Pharsalus that Pompey and Caesar met in pitched battle. Battle probably took place north of the river, between the Enipius and the hills lying between the modern village of Crini and Mount Doganzis. The date was August 9th, 48 BC by the Roman calendar, June 6th, 48 BC by today's solar calendar. It was a hot, steamy summer day. I've been to Pharsalus, now called Pharsala. It's a small city in an agricultural area, nowadays a place for growing cotton and raising cattle. It's a modest and friendly town. It might be best known for a kind of jelly candy made there, the local version of halva, not the more familiar sesame seed type, but something more like the popular jelly candy known today as chuckles. There's nothing in today's Farsala to suggest that the fate of empire was once decided near here. Yet it was, and in fact, with its flat plain, the area around Pharsalus attracted other battles through the ages, including one in the Byzantine era in the year 1277, and another more recently in the first Greco-Turkish War in 1897. It's lucky for me that I visited Pharsalus in autumn, because it is very hot here in the summer, as in most of Greece, especially on the continental plains. To understand the battle in 48 BC, let's first turn the calendar back a few pages to each army's separate arrival in the area. Caesar got there first. About seven days after Gompi, Caesar made his camp outside Pharsalus in the fertile plain. It was flat and open farm country where his men could easily harvest the grain that was about to ripen. 
Perhaps he placed his headquarters on a low hillock with a good view of the countryside. He was near the road that went north to Larissa, Pompey's headquarters in Thessaly, and just north of the crossing of the Enipius River. This strategic spot gave Caesar control of the terrain, not only Pharsalus and the southern half of the plain, but also the way south to a region of rich farm country beyond. It was an apt place to wait for Pompey. He arrived a few days later and camped in the foothills several miles to the north. For several days, Caesar tried to tempt Pompey down from the hills to fight on the plain. Caesar lined his men up for battle on the low ground, while Pompey lined his men up in the foothills. Pompey refused to descend, perhaps because he was hoping that Caesar's men were hungry and desperate enough to attack an enemy on the high ground. When they declined, Caesar finally sent his men down to the plain to fight on August 9th. It was early morning. Caesar had given up on fighting a battle here. He decided to move his camp to a hill town 10 miles to the northeast, where he expected to find more food. The men were already taking down their tents when suddenly scouts reported the enemy's deployment. Caesar made a quick decision and addressed his men. They would have to shift gears and prepare for battle. One source reports that Caesar told his soldiers that they would finally be able to fight other men instead of having to fight want and hunger. Caesar himself states his words thus. Let us be ready in our hearts for a fight. We won't easily find a chance like this again. Caesar ordered a purple tunic to be hung from the commander's tent, the Roman sign for battle, and at the sight, his men supposedly shouted for joy. It was the moment Caesar had been waiting for. It was the supreme battle. It was, as the poet Lucan puts it, discriminaducum, the crisis of the chiefs. The two armies lined up roughly on a north-south axis, bounded by the foothills to the north and by marshy ground around the Anipius River to the south. The battle line stretched for about two and one-half miles. The Caesareans were in the east, the Pompeians in the west. Caesar deployed about 22,000 heavy infantrymen and 1,000 cavalrymen. There were also light-armed troops from northern Greece. Caesar arranged his men in the standard Roman formation, three lines with the best units on the flanks. The battered legions 8 and 9 were combined into a single unit on the left flank, commanded by Marcus Antonius, better known as Mark Antony. He's the famous character in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, the man who gives the friends, Romans, countrymen speech. If you know the classic Hollywood movie, you might remember him being played by Marlon Brando. Not a bad choice, since the real-life Antonius was a leading man type. Caesar's best legion, the 10th, held the right flank, under the command of Publius Sulla. Domitius Calvinus commanded the center. Neither of these men is as glamorous today as Antony, but they were good generals. Caesar massed his cavalry on the left flank. He left another 2,000 heavy infantrymen to guard his camp. Pompey deployed a much bigger army. He had about 7,000 cavalry and 45,000 heavy infantrymen. Remember, Caesar had 1,000 cavalry and 22,000 heavy infantrymen. Pompey, like Caesar, deployed his infantrymen in three lines. Pompey placed his best legions strategically on the left flank, 
There were two legions that had previously served with Caesar. In the middle, there were two Syrian legions, and on the right flank, a legion from Cilicia in southern Turkey, along with some men brought over from Spain. In between the best units, Pompey deployed the rest of his heavy infantrymen, including 2,000 so-called beneficiaries. These were junior officers whom he had personally promoted. He placed maybe about 4,000 heavy infantrymen on garrison duty in his camp and the forts nearby. The two commanders, each on horseback, spent most of the battle opposite each other, Pompey on his left flank, Caesar on his right flank. So they were opposite each other. As you think of Pompey and Caesar opposite each other, imagine this. They were former political allies. Not only that, Pompey was once happily married to Caesar's daughter, Julia, until she died in childbirth. That was only six years ago, six years before Pharsalus. Back then, Pompey was Caesar's son-in-law. And after Julia's death, Caesar tried to marry Pompey off to another relative of his, to his great-niece. It didn't work out. Now, they were blood enemies about to fight to kill. Most of the legionaries in the two armies at Pharsalus were Roman citizens, Italians by origin, if not current residents, since many had settled in the east. The two cavalries were different. They were each a mixed lot. Caesar's horsemen were in large part Gauls and Germans. Pompey's cavalry included a large contingent of Roman aristocrats, the sons of senators and knights. But it also contained thousands of men from the east, representing a diverse group of peoples from Greece to Egypt, a few of them even kings and princes. It was a coat of many colors. Ever the tactician, Pompey planned no ordinary battle. He knew that his infantry couldn't beat Caesar's veterans, but he reckoned that it wouldn't have to. He missed an opportunity to use his cavalry at Dyrrhachium, and now he wanted to make up for it. Pompey decided to stake everything on his cavalry now. He would leverage his cavalry's superiority in numbers, equipment, and supply. Add to that, he had a number of light-armed troops as well, slingers and archers, most of them Greeks, Syrians, or other Easterners. Pompey's plan was to mass most of his cavalry on his left flank, about 6,000 men commanded by Titus Labienus. Titus Labienus is a fascinating character. He had been Caesar's right-hand man in Gaul when Caesar conquered Gaul in the 50s B.C., but when Caesar went to war with the Senate, when Caesar made it clear that he would stop at nothing to gain political power, Labianus had had enough, and he defected to Pompey and the side of the Senate. So Caesar's right-hand man was now one of Caesar's most determined enemies, and he brought with him valuable information to Pompey's camp. Anyhow, it was this Labianus who commanded the cavalry on Pompey's left flank. There was a small force of 600 cavalry who Pompey used to guard his right flank, but the real action was going to be on the left flank. At the start of the battle, Labianus and his thousands of cavalry would charge Caesar's right flank and then circle around to the rear. At the same time, several thousand slingers and archers would strike from a distance and soften up the enemy lines. 
Labianus's horsemen would drive off Caesar's insignificant cavalry, charge into the flank of the enemy infantry, and cause a panic. It would take a series of attacks, withdrawals, and renewed attacks, but eventually the cavalry would fold up the enemy's left wing and drive it toward his center. So the plan was to use the cavalry and destroy Caesar's army on the flank and then drive towards the center. What about Pompey's infantrymen? Well, Pompey gave them a simpler task, to hold the enemy. Normally, Roman infantrymen began a battle by throwing their javelins and advancing and then closing in with their swords. But at Pharsalus, Pompey issued an unusual order. He told the legions to stand still. Why did he do this? Well, he probably reasoned that a regular advance might cause his inexperienced lines to fall into disorder. He hoped that by standing in place, they might break the impetus of Caesar's attack while maintaining their own good order. They would force Caesar's men to march further to reach them, which might tire the enemy. Meanwhile, Pompey's men's immobility might make it easier for them to wield their shields against enemy javelins. They might even be able to counterattack. But the main thing was to provide a strong wall while Pompey's cavalry and light-armed troops hammered Caesar's men. So here we have Pompey showing that he's able to think on his feet. He knows that Caesar's army has the advantage of experience. He knows that they're veterans, and he knows that they're going to probably do a much better job of attacking than his men will do, simply because his men are inexperienced. So what's the way he's going to get around this? He's going to have his men stand still, which is unusual and is going to surprise the enemy, and surprise is always an advantage to have in battle. And then he's going to use his cavalry, led by a very experienced general, nobody knew Caesar better than Labianus, He's going to have his cavalry attack the enemy on the flank. It's a good plan, but still, when you think about this infantry whose job is just to stand still and hold the enemy, well, I don't know about you, but I'm reminded about the joke about the high school football team that was so bad that when the defense turned the field over to the offense, they said to the offense, hold them. Well, I like the joke. And... I think Pompey had a good plan. Anyhow, it would have been a good plan if it had been carried out by an army as good as Alexander's or Hannibal's. I'm being too hard. It would have been a good plan, but it lacked the element of deception. There were no tricks. Caesar could see what Pompey was up to with his cavalry, and he knew how to respond. He withdrew individual units from the third line of each of his legions, and he formed an unusual fourth line, which he positioned behind the cavalry, probably at an oblique angle. So Caesar is thinking on his feet as well. He sees that Pompey's going to do something unusual, so he does something even more unusual. He takes men from his third line, he withdraws them, and he creates a fourth line. He positions it behind the cavalry, probably at an oblique angle. Now, this weakened the third line, but as usual, Caesar was willing to take a risk. This is a man who's a risk addict. He loves risk. He has an advantage. The enemy could not see his fourth line, which means that Caesar, unlike Pompey, has the advantage of surprise. So now 
we have to line up to the battle. There are about 80,000 men on the field lined up against each other with more guarding the camps nearby. Pompey and Caesar, each on horseback, rode down the lines with their final words to incite fellow Romans to kill each other. The men's shouts and cries rang out an answer across the valley. And so the trumpets sounded the start of battle. But little worked out as Pompey had planned. Caesar's legionaries ran forward against the Pompeians to throw their javelins, but then they noticed the enemy was standing still. At that point, Caesar's men stopped. Now, this was a dazzling display of discipline to halt an army in mid-advance. By stopping, it allowed Caesar's men to catch their breath and then to start up again, full of energy for the attack. Even so, Pompey's men managed to hold their ground. Locked in combat, each side soon drew its second line into the fight. The roar of battle as a poet imagined it included the weight of groans as if from one immense voice, the clanging of armor against crashing bodies, and the sound of sword breaking against sword. The decisive action took place on Caesar's right flank. Pompey's cavalry, 6,000 strong, its wings deployed across the entire plain, as the poet says, thundered towards the enemy. I guess I should say it flew towards the enemy. Archers and slingers followed on foot behind them, firing so many missiles so rapidly that you could almost imagine them melting in the heat. Just as planned, the assault forced Caesar's cavalry from the field. Led by Lambianus, Pompey's cavalry redeployed in squadrons and began to surround the infantry lines on Caesar's exposed flank. It was the high watermark of Pompey's effort. Then Caesar ordered his fourth line to advance. Suddenly, the Pompeian cavalry faced not an infantry's flank, but its front, with a wall of iron-tipped spears in its path. It was an obstacle that ancient cavalries never succeeded in overcoming. Horses do not like crashing into iron-tipped spears. As one ancient author wrote, quote, no circumstance contributed more than this to Caesar's victory on that day. For as soon as Pompey's cavalry poured forth, these units routed it by an unexpected onset and delivered it up to the rest of the troops for slaughter. The key to victory, according to some sources, is what Caesar told his infantrymen, aim for the enemy's face on the principle that vanity would make an elite horseman turn and flee. That was nothing new. Alexander's men, too, aimed for the enemy's face. More likely, the real cause of Pompey's defeat was not vanity, but panic. When the cavalry piled up against the unexpected obstacle of Caesar's fourth line, they probably lost their nerve. Experienced men, veteran troops, might have coolly retreated, reformed, and attacked again, once the enemy gave them an opening. Not Pompey's rookies. Discipline and formation were gone. All that was left was a mad dash back to safety. If Labienus tried to get the cavalry back into formation to strike Caesar's fourth line in his rear in turn, it was a vain attempt. And that was that. Caesar's fourth line massacred the archers and slingers who had been left in the lurch. Then, the model of discipline, Caesar's legionaries turned and crashed into the left flank of Pompey's infantry line 
attacking it in the rear. Caesar, meanwhile, ordered his third line of legionaries out of reserve and into action. Pompey's infantry was now under attack from two sides and on one of them pounded by fresh troops. Too much, too much. After a slow retreat at first, the Pompeians ran. After the battle, Caesar walked around the field and looked at the dead bodies of Pompey's army. As he surveyed the ruin of his enemy, Caesar is said to have remarked, They wanted this. In spite of all my achievements, I, Gaius Caesar, would have been condemned if I hadn't asked my army for help. Hoc u elurunt. That is the Latin, for they wanted this. Ever the politician, Caesar took the trouble of stating his version of the Civil War. As he tells it, he wasn't the aggressor. Pompey had already left the field and returned to camp. The Battle of Pharsalus, as he well knew, was over. The war, however, would go on. It was his job now to try to salvage as much of his army as he could. Brilliant strategist, masterful tactician, tireless organizer, cunning diplomat, Pompey lacked only one thing. He wasn't Caesar. Pompey couldn't imagine Caesar coming back from the defeat of Dyrrhachium and beating him in pitched battle. It took nearly superhuman effort, but that is precisely what Caesar brought to bear. The sources paint a picture of Pompey in despair, but it is hard to trust them. In all likelihood, he tried to organize the defense of his camp. Legionaries, Thracians, and other non-Roman soldiers manned the ramparts, but few of his soldiers who streamed back from the battlefield joined them. Most of them kept running. The midday sun was blazing, and even the victors were exhausted, but Caesar urged them to attack. The Caesarians stormed the camp. Pompey's officers led as many defenders as they could into the hills. As for Pompey, as soon as the fate of his camp was sealed, he rode off through the back gate with a bodyguard of 30 cavalrymen. They thundered on the road toward Larissa. Meanwhile, Caesar's men were itching to gorge themselves on the luxury food and to loot the silver plate laid out under the ivy-covered bowers in Pompey's camp. But Caesar drove them forward in pursuit, another sign of their discipline. They found the Pompeians on a nearby hill that lacked water and immediately began to surround it with an earthwork. But the enemy skedaddled and took to the ridges in the direction of Larissa. Caesar would not let them escape. He divided his forces, left most of them to defend his camp and Pompey's. Then, taking four legions, he tracked the enemy down to another hill a few miles away and he had his weary men immediately begin building a wall to cut the enemy off. As night began falling, the Pompeians finally set representatives to negotiate surrender. Caesar offered lenient terms, and the enemy surrendered the next morning. Only a few senators had escaped during the night. As often in great battles, the results of Pharsalus were lopsided. Caesar lost only 230 men, including 30 officers. So he claimed. But other writers raised the figure to 1,200 men lost, which is far more credible. Caesar says his men killed 15,000 Pompeians and accepted surrender from another 24,000. Another eyewitness source estimates Pompey's losses at only 6,000 men. One thing is certain. The dead included Demidius Ahenobarbus, 
Caesar's arch enemy, who was killed by Caesar's cavalry as he fled from Pompey's camp to the nearby hill. Caesar claimed the honors of victory, 180 military standards, and 91 legionary eagles. The death toll at Pharsalus was much smaller than at Zama, with about 22,000 men dead, or at Cannae, with about 50,000 men dead. But with about 7,000 men dead, Pharsalus was terrible enough. The same day that the last Pompeian surrendered, Caesar hurried to the city of Larissa, but Pompey had already escaped. He was rushing to the coast, ready to board a ship to go east. Pompey had no intention of giving up. Why should he? He still claimed the title of supreme commander of the Roman state, and he was not without means of backing it up. He still had 7,000 soldiers at Dyrrhachium. He still commanded a fleet of 600 warships. He still knew more powerful people who owed him favors than most Romans could ever dream of meeting. So Pompey slipped out of Caesar's hands and prepared to continue the struggle. Caesar followed, eager to end the war. Neither man got his wish. Pompey made his way to Egypt, where he had many allies, but he turned out to have many enemies there too, and they had him stabbed to death as soon as he left his ship and stepped ashore. His horrified wife and son witnessed his murder from the safety of their ship, and they made their escape. Caesar followed Pompey to Egypt, but he was disappointed if he thought that Pompey's death would end the struggle. There was still hard fighting ahead in Egypt, in Turkey, Tunisia, and Spain. The war wasn't over until three years later in 45 BC, and even then, significant pockets of resistance remained. Caesar returned to Rome and towered over his political opposition. Within a few months, he took a title that had never existed in all the centuries of the history of the Roman Republic. Caesar became Rome's first dictator in perpetuo, dictator in perpetuity. It was a poison chalice. His arrogance aroused so much opposition that a month later he was assassinated on the Ides of March, March 15th, 44 BC. The murder took place in a meeting of the Roman Senate, but the Republic was not restored. What followed Caesar's death was another, probably worse set of civil wars. They weren't over until everything was settled at the Battle of Actium. Friends, if you liked this discussion of the Battle of Pharsalus, you can read more about it in my book, Masters of Command, where I also discuss Alexander and Hannibal. You can read about the assassination of Caesar in another of my books, The Death of Caesar. If you like our podcasts, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Meanwhile, we forge ahead with ancient military history. Join us next time when we discuss the Battle of Actium in another episode of Antiquitas. Theme music by Lush Life.